0: Namo dasa bhagavato arahado samma sambudhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahado samma Namo dasa bhagavato arahado samma sambudhasa. Putang tamang namasami. So this is the last part of the chapter called The Wheel of Birth and Death. And the next section is called Desire, Satisfaction, Dissatisfaction and Freedom. And before I go on to that, um, there's a a diagram that I made by my own hand um, uh, and that I I used at a number of different retreats. and so if there's people who are artistically inclined, anybody who's artistically inclined or who has a good photocopier uh, could make up a, a copy of this um, in a bit of a larger format and uh, stick it up on the whiteboard or somewhere appropriate so there's anybody who wishes to, to do that uh, again this is not the one and only or sort of the correct and perfect way of understanding dependent origination but it's the format that I'm using as a sort of Background and uh, and um, the structure for much of what I talk about in in this book and what I'm presenting. So, if people uh, would like to make use of that, then that can be posted for for easy reference. And uh, also for people who are not familiar with the with the terminology and the even you know the basic ideas of it, just having um, the uh, the you know the words up there you know Avijja, Sankhara, Vinnana, Amarupa, Salleddha, and so on, so that they roll off my tongue, because <laughs> I've been doing this for decades. Um, but for other people it's like, what comes after Vinyana? Uh, uh, it's twelve? Twelve links? I can only get eight. Uh, you sure there's twelve? Yeah. So, um, if, if somebody is interested um, to make up a, a copy of that and then post it, then um, please uh, do that for, for benefit. So, uh, desire, satisfaction, dissatisfaction, and freedom. Perhaps a good way to illustrate this last point, talking about um, uh, how we can get seriously lost, but there's the potential to, uh, to, to wake up and to be free. Perhaps a good way to illustrate this last point is to recount my own experience. When I was 21 years old, I was already regularly filled with despair. I'd become an alcoholic by the time I was 20 and was getting to the point where I was beginning to think that freedom was really impossible. Happiness was impossible. I was thinking that maybe life was just a case of surviving ordinary human unhappiness, quote-unquote, for as long as we can, eventually we die and that's all there is. I was beginning to have that kind of feeling. It seemed that it was impossible to be genuinely free because there there were always limitations. You could never fulfil all your desires. Either you didn't have enough money, or there were too many laws, too many obstacles, so freedom was impossible. So that's one short paragraph, but it, it covers quite a, a lot of my psychological landscape uh, in my late teens and up to the age of 21. So not to go into, into too much detail of that, but uh, I was generally a very optimistic, cheerful kind of a person. tend to you know look on the bright side. Glass always uh, uh, half, at least half full if not more than half full so uh, that's my personality was generally op- optimistic looking on the bright side and those of you who live with me for some time will probably be aware of that anyhow that's generally how my, my mind is but that had taken um, uh, a, a bit of a back seat that optimism and positivity uh, and uh, there were these waves of, of despair and uh, hopelessness and, and I hadn't experienced that before in my life there was always this sort of Positivity and optimism, looking forward and um, promise, and uh, and so in my late teens, sort of nineteen, twenty years old, there was this sort of <laughs> this sinking feeling, and um, and the way that I dealt with uh, with it to a great extent was drinking alcohol a lot. So when I was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, then drinking was for fun and enjoyment and partying, and it was just a kind of uh, a kind of a pleasant distraction and all the people that I grew, <laughs> grew up with and um, went to school with and was at college with, and even um, you know, the people that I uh, were around about in the, in the countryside where I lived. Uh, uh, a lot of drinking going on. I was given my first uh, beer mug when I was six by my parents. <laughs> I had my own, I'm not kidding. I had my own beer mug when I was six years old. And I had an inch of beer every Sunday at Sunday lunchtime. And my father's uh, father's philosophy on this was, he's got to start sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't object. So, uh, yeah, so there was a lot of drinking going on. And um, it, uh, the, the, uh, both in the, the crowd of people I went to school with, and in the, the college where I was at university. And then also just in the, uh, I grew up in the horse riding uh, set in the countryside, so there's a lot of booze in the, the horse riding people, lots of gin and tonic in particular. <laughs> Scotch and gin and tonic and beer is uh, extremely uh, uh, consumed in extremely large quantities, I can say from direct experience. Uh, so anyway, um, and that expression, ordinary human unhappiness, those of you who've studied uh, or read much of Sigmund Freud might recognize that but that's the, uh, the end of one of his, one of his very early books, and one of his most famous books, um, The Interpretation of Dreams. He makes this comment that um, the best that my, something like, I, can't, I don't know what the German is, but <laughs> the, the English translation is something like, the, the best that my method, my approach can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness. And when that was, I came across that, I was introduced to that in a tutorial in in I was studying psychology and physiology, something in me just snapped, like, no, we we can do better than that. Uh, I'm not going to settle for, you know, ordinary human unhappiness, that's the most we can hope for? Like, no. I wasn't, I couldn't make a logical argument, (laughs) particularly with the tutor I had at that time. But uh, it was, uh, that's where that phrase comes from, ordinary human unhappiness, but something um, rebelled against that. That was when I was eighteen. By the time I got to nineteen and twenty, then it seemed like that was all that, uh, all that was possible. So I drank, uh, and so I went from drinking for fun to just drinking to not feel and um, to to stop existing. And and I've often mentioned how I had a a kind of spiritual epiphany, a sort of not exactly a mystical experience, but a, certainly a spiritual turning point here in Hemel Hempstead, of all places currently uh, working its way towards being a spiritual capital of the UK but uh, it was not quite there yet it got, it, got the, it got voted the ugliest town in Britain a couple of years ago it did, it did, we won the prize so. ugliest town in Britain, they had a picture of the Marlowe's the, the, the pedestrian shopping centre in the newspaper Hemel got the prize that year Anyway, so uh, at this uh, particular uh, friend's 21st birthday party here in Hemel, I'd drunk most of a bottle of scotch. I, I, you know, there was lots of booze around at the party. I, I adopted a bottle of Teacher's Highland Cream, those are some of you're familiar drinkers in this country, uh, Teacher's uh, Scotch Whiskey, and I was about an inch and a half from the bottom. I'd drunk about a pint of scotch, and I still hadn't got to that place where everything was good. It was just I wasn't even particularly drunk. I was just sort of a bit fuzzy <laughs> but uh, it's like and i literally had the thought this is a waste of good scotch you know i've drunk a pint of scotch and i'm just still feeling the same insecure alienated um, unhappy state and so there was a, it was a turning point because i i realized i can't drink enough to get to that place where everything is good Where up to that point you know <laughs> this was a, a window where the alcohol would hit to the point where you could just sort of uh, forget everything and in in some cultures when people ask what is the purpose of drinking why do people drink the answer is to forget I was speaking with someone from from Russia the other day and they said that's that's why Russian people drink I mean I I can't speak for I can't speak for all I can't speak for all Russian people but that particular (laughs) Russian person was saying that's why we do it seriously, it was, I was, he was interviewing me for a book he was doing with a, a Russian journalist, um, and uh, he said, yeah, that's yeah to forget. And so I couldn't forget anymore. So then my 21st birthday present to myself was to stop drinking and to head in the other direction. So that was my, my gift to myself. So uh, I um, uh, stopped drinking when I was uh, 20, 21 and then went traveling to, to Southeast Asia. So anyway, uh, that was... Um, Uh, Something I've been wrestling with since childhood, trying to figure out how we could be free when you have all these limitations, like not enough money, (laughs) the force of gravity, laws, uh, people's feelings, uh, just uh, over and over again, uh, there's limitations we meet here and there and everywhere. And and I've been wrestling with it since I was about 11 or 12 years old, trying to figure out how I've had this feeling that somehow we can be free. There is this possibility of, of freedom or perfection. But uh, there are all these boundaries, all these limitations, all these things getting in the way that obstruct freedom and uh, and so, at that age, sort of late teens, um, twenty years old, it was I was beginning to get these feelings of oh that was all just a stupid childish dream, that was all just not fantasy, that was all just nonsense and And so there were these uh, uh waves of uh, very despairing feeling that was. Uh, that was taking over, but I I, uh, I knew that I had to do something serious about my attitude, <laughs> and so that as I said, that my twenty first birthday present to myself was to to stop drinking and to and also I had arranged to go travelling to Southeast Asia and to seek to seek spiritual um, guidance and spiritual uh, spiritual practice spiritual life, so that's what uh, about a week after my twenty first birthday I was I actually. I got on a plane with 22 racehorses, another strange part of my particular journey to the east was I traveled out with them. I grew up with horses so, and I, had, I was given a free flight helping to look after these racehorses as they were being taken to, to, um, to race and to, to for stud in uh, Malaysia. So I was on a plane to Kuala Lumpur with 22 racehorses. So Malaysia takes a, a special place in my ancestry as well. And uh, so, and then I, I wandered around Southeast Asia until I found my way to Wat Nanachad About four months after I left England, so anyway, to continue, I went travelling in Southeast Asia, and along the way, I was shown to a monastery in Thailand. I asked to stay there simply because I needed a place. I didn't have very much money. That's always been a feature of my uh, my background very very little money. Um, uh, at the time, as a type of hippie anarchist, I objected philosophically to organised religion and to rules of any kind. Uh, the, the, my sort of freedom um, uh, interest in freedom and um, that side of things was led me to be a sort of hippie anarchist, you know, dismissing uh, uh, government laws and uh, organised religion and, uh, and all of that. I had sort of brushed aside in my. Philosophical approach I thought I would stay at the monastery for two or three days um, And I was I was uh, I I Needed a place to stay and and my first thought monastery. Oh dear lots of rules Okay, well maybe two or three days And that was my my thought that was in January of 1978, so 44 years ago I Knew nothing about Buddhism at that time. I'd never even read a Buddhist book I thought that the Buddha was Chinese. <laughs> the monks kindly let me stay at the monastery for a few days, telling me I'd need to shave my head if I was going to be there for more than a week. That was the standard for what Nanacharya in those days, that if you were, uh, anybody staying there for, for more than a week had to shave their head. On the first evening I asked one of the novices, who uh, was an Anagarika, um, Peter Hazel was his name, about meditation and he gave me some instruction. I remember him saying, desire is a liar. When you desire something, it's not telling you the truth. And if we let go of our desire, then it just passes away. When I heard that, I thought, that's pretty stupid. That doesn't help me at all. I still won't get what I want. I'll still be in a state of lack, just as usual. But I also thought that since I was staying in the place, I should give it a try. All guests were on the eight precepts. Which uh, I was surprised to learn meant that there was no supper i 'd never even heard of the precepts before walking into the monastery that day that evening, a few minutes into the group meditation. I thought i 'm hungry, I fancy some pineapple. this by this is not a hint to anyone in the kitchen about pineapple. it 's just <laughs> a random part of the story, so it's just uh, i 've been in Phuket, where they have a lot of very uh, very delicious and very cheap pineapple. So if I lived on sort of one-bart sticks of pineapple for a long time. Then I thought, okay, I'm hungry. That's a desire. But the novice said, let go of desire and things will be fine. So, okay, I'm aware I'm feeling hungry. Hmm, it's not making it go away. So what did that letting go bit mean? A moment later, I'm still hungry. Buddhism is stupid. <laughs> but... After five or ten minutes, my mind having been distracted by something else, I noticed that when I brought my attention back to the present, the hungry feeling had gone. A few minutes earlier, I was hungry, and I had apparently an, and I was apparently incomplete without some pineapple. Ten minutes later, I hadn't got the pineapple, but nothing was missing. Oh, I didn't get the pineapple, and nothing is missing. Exclamation mark underlined. <laughs> That was the big moment. It was like a curtain opening on the way forward to liberation. I could suddenly see what the novice had meant when he said, desire is a liar. Desire had been telling me that if I didn't get the pineapple, I would not be complete. If we believe that, we end up endlessly chasing the desired object, hoping for some kind of fulfilment. The moment came where I didn't get the pineapple and nothing was missing. It was as if a pathway had opened up in front of me and I could see what I had to do. Of course, that was the start of a long journey rather than the end of one. That happened more than 40 years ago, and it's one of the reasons why I still follow this teaching today. (coughs) It's highly valuable because it speaks to the insight, the intuition, that freedom is possible. Even if the addictions are still there in the system, the heart knows deep down that freedom is possible. So that was uh, faith uh, at that moment, arose, and uh, hit. that was literally uh, uh, January of 1978, so more than 40 years ago. So any particular questions, thoughts? Yes. It a lot of people uh, they invest a lot in this uh, becoming, that's why it's so difficult to become so usually things have to fall apart at least to some degree for people to be able to try this. Uh it helps. <laughs> yeah, as long as our our, our fulfillment program is is, is working then dukkha, what dukkha? It's like like being born in the Deva realms, it's like You've got a constant supply of everything that, that every desire, everything that the desire mind latches onto. so to Kushmuka, you know what's, there's no problem. It's when it runs out, or you can't get away from that. Um, then, or like, like I found, I, I couldn't drink enough to get to that happy place. Sort of, whereas as a, in you know, 15, 14, 15, 16, it was you know, partying was easy, or well, largely. But then it sort of got <laughs> it got narrower and, narrower and narrower and narrower until there was no access to that that place where everything is good, and so uh, so it and it's often I mean that's what one of the reasons why the heavenly messengers in in Buddha Dhamma are aging, sickness, and death, and and the summoner you know the, the first three are those shocks to the system that uh, that then cause us to see things differently, we're forced to, to wake up and to, to reconsider that we can't take things for granted. So that they're, they're heavenly messengers even though they're, they're, they're shocking or un, un, unwanted, aging, sickness, death, but they are heavenly insofar as they are the things that can catalyze that change of perspective. It helps you to wake up to not be just sort of uh, lost in your own uh, desire system. So we don 't try and make crises, but one of, like I was talking about Dutanga practices and life in the monastery, life in the monastery is a is a slow frustration program <laughs> or a gentle kind of eco friendly um, sort of civilized frustration program i think uh, Sujita, when talking about Tibetan tradition, he said in the Tibetan tradition, they have these nundro practices of one hundred thousand mantras, one hundred thousand Prostrations, you know, 100,000 visualizations. That in Theravada we have 100,000 frustrations. <laughs> so we use uh, that. No, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. No, 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 no not that either. So so that's, um, like a. But there's some very, very um, uh, sort of eco friendly and physically uh, undamaging um, and uh, socially acceptable. Uh, Frustrations, and, uh, but they that um, going without, not fulfilling those those habitual desires, then you're you're meeting that mentality that says, if I just got this, then I will be happy. If I could just go to the fridge and help myself to something that I that I like, then I'd be happy. And then it's giving it's just holding up a a mirror to that and saying, well, perhaps, <laughs> but that happiness would be very short-lived, and that's uh, and if you 're just patient and you watch this feeling, then perhaps you recognize that it 's just a feeling and doesn 't have to be followed and then, just like it was mean that sitting in the the sala at what Nanachat all those years ago then then just that sense of oh that 's how it works. I told you know, I thought i've really got to have x or y or Z in order to be happy it wasn 't true it was just that it was a feeling that was there in that moment, but it didn't have to be followed or believed in oh. And that that was something I'd never. It never crossed my mind that up until that point that that um, you could relate to a, a desire or a, 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 a um, something that seemed to be a boundary or a limit in that way. And um, it, just, it just really hadn't crossed my mind. And so that was that feeling of oh, this is a whole different point of view. Aha! And so that that feeling of a of sort of the curtains parting. <laughs> it did feel like that. That's sort of like a, the. I spent quite a lot of time on on theatre stages, so it's like the, the curtain's opening, <laughs> and the, the 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 aisle down the middle of the theatre, you know, being there before you, it's like curtains part and there's the pathway. It's the the, uh, the feeling I had, and the, oh, that's that's the way forward. And uh, you know, I was a confused twenty-one-year-old, so I didn't really have it all figured out by any means. But there was a strong intuitive sense of that's. That's that's the way to go. This this is the this is the, the key. Um, uh, say uh, uh, the the key to to freedom. This is the key to the thing that you've been looking for all these all these years. Uh, yeah. Follow this and see see where it goes. So that's what I decided to do. Further thoughts? Questions? I have one question. Uh, we were talking about <coughs> design, uh regarding the eating habits and I have like uh, I have a, I have a special design for people food. I spicy and when I see them and I'm hard to control and and for instance also a kind of during like my coffee, when I taste them, I don't feel the delicious, but always at a certain time during the day, I go to get and mm-hmm. And my question is, if I discover, uh, recognize the pattern that I desire certain types of foods and drink, should I stop? Uh, should you? <laughs> stop, stopping stop. eating <laughs> and drinking them or what? Uh, well, it's good to, uh, it's very helpful to get a perspective on that. So if you say, okay, one day, today as an experiment, whenever I get that feeling, I'll, I'll do my best to just know it as a feeling. Or like you know, when you, you come to the surgery and your, your nose tells you, ooh, Thai food today. <laughs> and that to, if, you, if you've made a decision, okay, today I'm just going to do what I can to notice those feelings without following them, then you can use that as an opportunity to explore that. So it's not the the problem isn't the, isn't the food or the coffee, <laughs> the 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 issue is the mind's habit. Like I've got to have this. Or this is a good thing. And all of us, regardless of uh, of our background, where we grew up, the kind of food that we ate as children, um, the, the the mind literally it's, it's called imprinting. So certain flavors or smells. Have the association of good, home, happy, you know, mother. If you had a, a mother who was looking after you, well, and that, and that those it kind of, depending on the country you grew up or the part of the country you grew up in, then it'll it'll vary what those particular smells or tastes and and uh, uh, textures are. And so uh, it's helpful to get a perspective on that to, to realize that this isn't. In itself, so good or delicious, or, or 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 it's not the happiness isn't in the isn't in the food or the or the, the drink, but rather to to get to know that conditioning and it's. so you won't make it go away. Like marmite tastes good to me because in in Britain often the first food that you have as a child after you're weaned is marmite on on pieces of bread called marmite soldiers. So most, many, a large proportion of children in, in this country get habituated to the taste of Marmite when they're, ba- they're babies, when they're babies. And so it becomes associated with, with happiness, with mother, with goodness, with, with, with not being hungry. <laughs> and so people who don't come from this, co- this country, they often will take some Marmite and go, do this on purpose? <laughs> is it supposed to taste like this? Yeah. But because of the conditioning that that we have uh, in this country, then it's it often it's well no it's 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 the taste of goodness and happiness. It was only invented around the time of the First World War as a way to get um, vitamins into the diet of the the people in the, uh, in the in the British Army, and they used the dregs of the beer brewing process, the the kind of well, the sludge in the bottom of the, of the beer barrels was used to make uh, Marmite, because they, they, they were looking for any kind of nutrition they could get that would support the, the thousands and thousands of troops in the war. And so Marmite got invented. And then, <laughs> in case you're interested in the history of Marmite, <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Uh, but, uh, but so that then that became something that was very, very popular, very widespread, and... So it's that people in this country get imprinted on them, so growing up in Thailand, you know things being spicy um you know having a, having chili in then in in Thailand or in southeast Asia generally i think in south Asia then that uh, that can similarly be the taste of goodness, and even well in the, in Europe might be perceived as really kind of rich tasty food it's uh, i'm not criticizing Thai people, but I, I've been uh, around Thai people when having what and to a, uh, a, a European or a British tongue would say, wow, that's really, really rich, tasty. And then for a Thai person, oh, no flavor. Because there's no chili in it. It's not, it's not it hasn't got that hot, spicy quality. No flavor? This <laughs> is like kind of, to, 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 to me it would be like kind of exploding with flavor, but that, it, it didn't have that... Hot quality, so it's like, mmm, mummy wrote, no, no flavour, and so uh, to get to know how the mind is and the, is conditioned is really really helpful, and things that we call bad and wrong, that you know, things you know, a bad smell or, or it kind of tastes awful or it's really ugly, um, to see well, those things are also they're conditioned and and formed because of our our experiences and that. Uh, if we can get a perspective on that, so every so often you know, um, living with something that you think is a, a, a really ugly color, I say, well, why do I call that ugly? Why, you know, I say, oh, that's, that's horrible, why do I call that horrible? And so rather than sort of getting rid of it or giving it away, you know, just keep it around for a little while and to see that you're uh, looking at that, oh, this is this is horrible, this is ugly, and um, so you're not trying to torture yourself and make life difficult. Oh, I'm attached to spicy food, therefore I should never have chili ever again. That would be too extreme, because the problem is not, not the chili. It's, the, it's the, the mind's attachment, saying, oh, this is good, and if it doesn't have this, then it's, it's not good. And then, if there's a, if we develop a perspective in that way, on what the mind is is accustomed to, or is habituated to, then it makes us far more adaptable. We can happily live in, in many different situations, whether it's spicy food or not spicy food or... <laughs> mm-hmm. should I, uh, you should know, get the perspective that yeah. yeah. I don't really get the deep meaning. If I recognize that I'm addicted to certain tests, and then I recognize that it's a mind, uh, uh... Well, to to recognize what the mind is is doing that how uh, when you're close to that or you're helping yourself to some food, notice how the mind is saying, "This is my mind calling it good," Mm -hmm. and this is something that's that's absolutely good. Also, to notice like if you're feeling ill, you know when when you're ill, and then any kind of food is like, "Oof, it's off-putting." To notice that it's like and someone says to you that, you know if you if you're ill one day and someone says oh can we bring you any food you go, oh no no i don't want anything then notice aha so you deliberately bring that to mind aha so today what i would call delicious yesterday is not attractive or interesting at all i don't even want to see it or think about it look at that so is the happiness is the goodness in the in the food or is it is it in the mind so you're using that um those, those habits as a, uh, you know, to uh, support that quality of, of pijarana, wise reflection. Okay? So the next chapter is called A Buddha in Every Realm, chapter 3. In the Buddhist tradition, the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha forms the centerpiece of our faith and practice. We reflect upon the qualities of these three jewels daily, for example, in the morning and the evening chanting at our monasteries. We recite the attributes of each of them in a formal way, but we also reflect that the elements of the Triple Gem have both an internal and an external aspect to them. This is called the inner and outer qualities of the Triple Gem. When we chant our praises, our respect and reverence of the Buddha, this refers in the external sense to Gautama Buddha, our teacher, the founder of this religious tradition, the great master who established this amazing array of teachings and who realized full and complete enlightenment and who has been a great example and mentor of so many generations of us that have followed after. This is an important aspect of the Triple Gem. Ajahn Chah and other forest Ajahn's would emphasize that, on a psychological level, the Buddha refuge is not so much an external historical Buddha, who (coughs) who passed away 2,563 years ago, but rather the internal quality of Buddha, that is, the true refuge. That's the safe place, here and now. A genuine refuge has to be a sanctuary, here and now. A memory, or an idea of a historical figure, a statue, or a shrine, is not a safe place. It's an image. It can inspire, but it's not where genuine psychological, spiritual security can be found. The word Buddha literally means the one who is awake, essentially the quality of wakefulness. To, quote, take refuge in Buddha, unquote, is to choose to be awake. It is the choice to embody that very awareness, that knowing, that is the essence of true wisdom. It's an attribute of this heart, your heart, my heart, here and now. So on the internal level, taking refuge in the Buddha is to be aware, to be awake, to employ that quality of awareness, to know the flow of experience, here and now. So as related to um, what I was saying yesterday, that um, dialogue between the Buddha and the Brahmin donna, Mang man uh, pramana dhareti, you know, hold me uh, to be one who is awake. So that uh, and that quality of of uh, uh, Buddha. Also, Lumpur Sumedha talks uh, very frequently uh, about this in uh, in his Dhamma teachings and so that uh, uh, that's a, a a common theme, a regular theme within Dungpho um, Cha's teachings in particular. He would say, uh, you know, the Buddha who is a refuge, he hasn't gone anywhere. The Buddha is alive uh, today. Actually, I think one of the last... Sunday talks last summer was, uh, you know, is the, Buddha, is the Buddha alive today? And I quoted a lot of Lumpur Chah's comments and teachings about that. That the, the Buddha that is the awake, aware quality of the heart is very much uh, alive here today. And not, not as though there's a sort of, <laughs> the spirit of Gautama Buddha is floating around and occupying different uh, people, it's not that at all, but rather that quality of awakened awareness that the, 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 the Lord Buddha was the embodiment of, that is an attribute of our own being, our own citta, that can be accessed, that can be um, uh, used, and uh, can be the, um, uh, a, uh, a basis for, uh, for experience here and now. Any questions? Thoughts? Um, yes. I've got a question about when we practice the And um, is that essentially, I don't know enough about the Pali language to understand what's happening, but my understanding from when is talking is that it's being the knowing. Um, and so, is that essentially what we're trying to do when we're so, for example, when I'm doing breathing meditation or walking, like Buddha, Buddha, um, and so I'm just wondering if that's reference to this idea of Buddha nature and being the knowing. Why does it go from Buddha to Buddha? So, it's more about the language. I guess. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Really, the um, and, uh, that being being the knowing is. Uh, again a very f- uh, familiar phrase lompso would use that a lot uh, in his teaching and um st- oh, in in that uh in the practice of that rather than here is me trying to to be the knowing <laughs> to, to recognize oh there is this this me trying to do, trying to be the knowing that's what's happening but there's the the knowing of that me trying to be something is also uh, it's a more fundamental kind of a of a knowing of look there's a there's a me who's who's arising to to be doing the practice and so on so that in in essence uh, the, the 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 mind stays as close to that back wall of knowing if you can use that language as possible oh I'm really getting the hang of this oh, and then to be aware of well, here's the mind saying I'm really getting the hang of this there's a knowing of that thought arising. And that, oh, I just saw that thought that's great i'm really I'm really getting the hang of this <laughs> and seeing that so that how the mind continually latches on to its thoughts, its judgments, its motivations, its assessments, and to, leaves that back wall of 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 pure awareness, and that the more that that sort of if that uh, is a useful simile uh the more that the mind can recognise that habit of leaving that that the back wall or the, the, that ground of of awareness and getting born into sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, activity, decision making, and so on, and can uh, embody that quality of of awareness in an ongoing way, then there's a. Uh, uh, there's an attunement to the time the place the situation and the 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 question sister Tana Vijaya who's not here today was asking the other day about well can that kind of watching or um uh, that being the, the the that aware one who knows can that be a sort of dissociation or a dislocation and disconnection it, it can if it's handled incorrectly but if that if that quality is developed in the most sort of complete and skillful way, then the partner of that awareness is action and speech that's totally in tune with the time, the place, the situation. So when it's time to speak up, you speak up. When it's time to be quiet, you can be quiet. When it's time to take action, you act. When it's time to be still, you're still. And so that uh, that's a part of what's really embodied in the life of the Buddha. Is both this supremely transcendent wisdom, totally liberated uh, 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 super mundane wisdom of a fully enlightened Buddha, Samasambuddha uh, but at the same time, uh, then every it said, you know, every word that he spoke was, was true, every action that he took was in tune with the time, and the place, and the situation, and that, uh, even if he, uh, he sort of said things, or, or that, uh, he was sometimes criticized for things, or that things that he, he said had painful consequences when people mis- misunderstood them or, or took them in the wrong way, then he wouldn't create suffering around it. He would say, okay, well, when I said that, what it was meant was this. <laughs> so so uh, don't do this, do that. So that it wasn't that, uh, as though every time that he spoke, everybody understood exactly what he meant and took it in the right way. But he, um, uh, it's it said every word that he spoke was, was true and, and well-fitted to the situation he was in every action that he took from the time of enlightenment so it's pointing to an attunement to the um, to the material world to the living uh, the living system of other human beings other living creatures that's a natural result of that transcendent wisdom so it's not spaced out or dissociated or abstracted uh, but rather and this is a particular quality of uh, of the buddha's way and one of the the, the the aspects of it that I find incredibly you know, inspiring and, and realistic is that rather than an enlightened being kind of being totally spaced out or so needing to be carried around on a stretcher or or, or to be they're, they're so they're so enlightened they can't even feed themselves or which yeah you know, uh, that, that sometimes that's, uh, states of enlightenment are represented in that way uh, it's what we have in the, the the Buddha's way and the Buddhist tradition is there's a, a tremendous practicality and a groundedness and attunement to the to the material world and uh, and so meeting someone like, like uh, Lumpur Cha, he was uh, very much uh, uh, so attuned to, to the world. And when I first met him, he was building a toilet. He had, he had a, a cement trowel in his hand. He was doing the smoothing the cement. Uh, surrounded a toilet in the middle of a what, <laughs> Of course, I thought this is very significant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very grounded, earthy, even. but uh, but in a way, it's it's, it's true that, that there was a tremendous practicality and um, straightforwardness, and uh, and um, for being around someone like Lumpur Cha is incredibly good at um, reading people and situations. It's very incredibly observant, like you would just notice uh, so what's going on and where people were at and, and what would be useful to, to say to, to each person. So extraordinary degree of of, of um, being observant and attuned to, to situations. Okay. Uh, when we think of the jewel of the Dhamma, we often think this refers solely to the Buddha's wisdom. The words of the scriptures and the many wonderful descriptions and skillful means that are given in the verbal teachings of the Buddha, or in the words of the great teachers over the centuries. The word Dhamma, however, literally means that which upholds, or that which supports, that which integrates. So the, the root um, of it in Pali and Sanskrit is Dr, dr which I'm not pronouncing very well. <laughs> Thank, close. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. So it's uh, that means that which supports or upholds, uh, integrates, and so also like dharati, like the I hold uh, hold me to be the one who is awakened, or silatara dharara, is all related to that d (laughs) root. The word Dhamma also means nature, or the natural order. The Pali word Dhamma-jati, born of the Dhamma, is the word used in the Thai language to refer to nature, tamachat, Chat, jati, born of the Dhamma. The natural order of things. On an external level, taking refuge in Dhamma means that we are guided by the Buddha's teachings, taking those teachings to be a reliable source of knowledge. On the internal level, taking refuge in Dhamma is choosing to be in harmony with the way things are, to be in harmony with nature. Essentially, it means to choose to live in a way centered on nature rather than centered on our ego, our personality. Uh, So I I like to to phrase that, having a Dhamma-centered perspective rather than a self-centered perspective, which is, uh, and I think in the morning reflection today, I think I was talking about that, so that uh, that change of of, of uh, attitude or change of, of view is is a, essentially um, part of taking refuge in Dhamma, letting go of the habits of of a self-centered perspective, like I feel, I think, you know, you know my body, my personality, my life, and taking those um, me and mine, I uh, structures as something you know absolute and solid and and dependable and. Seeing you know this life and this field of experience in terms of nature, and uh, that's uh, I would say that's the a, uh, a, uh, the main way of the on a moment-to-moment basis of taking refuge in Dhamma is letting go of the self-centered habits, uh, eye-making and mind-making, and to train the the attitude, train the heart to to see and know things in terms of, of Dhamma instead, in, ter- in terms of nature and the natural order. Taking refuge in Dhamma means that the heart attunes itself to and is in harmony with its own nature, which is also the nature of all things. As Ajahn Chah said, everything is Dhamma. Dhamma is nature. If we realize the Dhamma, then we will likewise be the Buddha. That's in the Collected Teachings of Ajahn Chah, page 485. So i I like to To encourage that as a way of reflecting, particularly developing the insight into not self. So we think, oh, this is my body, or this is my mind, or these. I have memories that you know I remember that party in Hemel Hempstead in 1976 or 77, where that was. You know, you don't remember that. Probably none of you were there. Pretty sure no one here was was there. (laughs) So I remember that. My memory. I remember. and then each one of us has got our own particular memories, our own ideas, our own feelings, and that seems to be very much who and what we are. But when that's explored and investigated, then every aspect of this body, every molecule, every atom is, is part of the natural order. You know, none of us invented the proton or the electron. We didn't, no one here was responsible for coming up with gravity. Right? We didn't invent the physical world. It's not personal. And these bodies are made up of, of you know, molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles. Uh, that's our body. And we say, this is me. But uh, the, the entire fabric of this body is made up of these, these um, you know, atoms, molecules, uh, particles that are part of the natural order that you're conjured up in, in <coughs> supernovae you know, great bursts of explosions in the cosmos, different parts of eons past. That's where these bodies come from, all of the oxygen and phosphorus and carbon and nitrogen. Yeah. This planet didn't exist more than you know, four billion years ago. So uh, we forget that what we take to be so personal, this body, uh, you know, our, uh, as something who and what we are, but it's fabricated from aspects of the, of the material form of the universe. And then we look at memories or ideas, emotions, uh, uh, mental attributes, moods, thoughts. And I think, oh, I remember this is my memory, this is, you know, this is my idea, my mind, my mood. But that you know, again, I, I didn't invent sadness, I didn't invent excitement, I didn't invent uh, the ability to remember or to imagine. These are all parts of nature. And so we take those memories or those feelings, those moods, as very personally I'm feeling this or it's my responsibility I'm worried about it uh, and <clears throat> and yet every single aspect of our mental and physical world when it's explored there's not one single thing that, that can be found that's not a part of the natural order you say ah, oh, well my glasses they were made in a factory they were the factory <laughs> the people who work in the factory the people who started the factory the materials that the glasses are made of where do they come from they're also star stuff like these bodies that uh, the the human beings that put the, put these glasses together or printed this book, you know, put this chair together. That uh, these uh, the, the the beings and the thoughts, the energies that put all these objects together, and the ingenuity that arose to figure out how to do these, make these glasses so the the prescription that matched my eyes. Those are all aspects of nature. So I find this a really helpful. Uh, liberating kind of uh, way to cultivate the insight into not self. Because with with the with the principle of anatta, not self, you're not trying to make uh, you're not trying to make the mind believe that you know I don't exist. But it's just changing that perspective from that uh, the 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 way that it personalizes everything. You know, my body, my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my my moods, my aspirations, my regrets. <clears throat> and to to see that every single aspect of that, sort of coarse and subtle, inside, outside, every single aspect of it, has to be a part of the natural order. We take it very personally, but <laughs> when it's sort of teased apart, when it's looked at, then of course, all of it is Dhamma-jati. It's born of the Dhamma. It's, it's part of the natural order. So... Uh, and then as i've been saying in the, the morning reflections the point is not just to sort of repeat that as an intellectual exercise but to to uh, to realize the the effect that that has when there's like oh <laughs> that's, that's you know this body this blood you know th- these th- these things that seem to be so much me and mine oh look at that it's part of uh, the natural order and just seeing that in that, in that moment, how the mind can hold things less personally and uh, really appreciating that change of view, that shift of perspective. So, let's go on to the taking of refuge in, in the Sangha also has inner and outer aspects. Externally, this is choosing to be guided by and to take as an example those beings who have awakened to the truth, to Dhamma. And who are the enlightened disciples of the Buddha? In our daily recollections, we refer to, quote, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, which many people coming into the, when, we, when we used to do pujas, they <laughs> who, who are these four pairs of people? Who are they? Have I met them? Are they. A, what is that? The four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. That refers to the four stages of, of, uh, of enlightenment, stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahant. And the the four pairs is uh, refers to the two stages of each of those. So that being on the path to stream entry and then having realized uh, the fruit of stream entry. On the path to being a once returner and the fruit of one, being a, a once returner. On the path to uh, uh, non-returner and then having realized the the fruit of non-return and then on the path to arahantship and then realizing the fruit of arahantship. So this is called Magga, path, and pala, being fruit. You can think of it as a series of four orchards, if you like, if you want a mental image, just one orchard after another. On the pathway to that first orchard, then you get the fruit. Pathway to the next orchard. then. What a simple representation of that. Uh, So that's who the, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, refers to. The internal aspect of Sangha is about how we practice, how that noble heart manifests in the world. Refuge in Sangha, quote-unquote, internally, can mean a variety of things, but since the description of the Sangha refuge lists the qualities of goodness, respecting and loving the good, uh, supatipano, those who practice in a good way, uh, ujupatipano, loving to act in a straightforward way, uju means straightforward, uh, nyaya patipano uh, uh, those who love to act in a well integrated way uh, and how to be accomplished in goodness samichi patipano uh, I feel that the most accurate and helpful way of understanding it is to uh, to take refuge in sangha as choosing to listen to the voice in the heart that loves the good so that's a, um, it's a, uh, a bit of a clunky way of expressing it but I feel in terms of that's, uh, as an ongoing inner practice of uh, taking refuge in Sangha, is that um, that uh, l- listening to the, that in our own chitta, which delights in wholesomeness, in kindness, in compassion, in unselfishness, in generosity, in harmlessness and, and honesty and such like, to, uh, to, to listen to that, that in the heart which loves the good and to choose to follow that, that is moment by moment, uh, refuge in in sangha. So uh, again, I, I acknowledge there's this, there's probably a number of other ways to interpret that, but that's what makes most sense to me. And so the um, <coughs> the it, sometimes it can be said taking refuge in sangha is represented by keeping the precepts or, or um, uh, it's the quality of virtue. But within that, I feel it's it's helpful to see that it, with sila there's the seela, which is the 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 precepts, the kind of the wording of the precepts that we keep, and then there's the that the, the quality of the heart, the jitta, that that the the virtue of the heart. So the, the the precepts, the wording of the precepts and the structure of the precepts, is a, like an external form, but the, what is say uh, the spirit of that is that the heart that loves the good, the heart that, it, that delights in harmlessness and honesty and so forth. And that 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 inner virtue. There's a Pali word gunadhamma, which is not very uh, not used very much, but it represents the uh, the actual quality of virtue. So the the rules themselves are uh the precepts as they're spelt out, you know, pāta, and so on. Uh, that's the, the sila in the external form, but the, the sort of the driving force, or the informing spirit of sila, is that gunadhamma, or that. Um, that quality of uh, virtue of, of the heart. Any questions, thoughts on refuge in Dhamma, refuge in Sambha? It's about the um, path of food. And um, I've read somewhere, I don't know where it was, something about oh, their arise at the same time. And um, maybe I've also read that maybe that's not the case. Do you have a particular understanding on whether there's a you know, quite a significant duration between starting the path? Safe stream entry and actually the route and the other. I would say it varies enormously from one being to another so it could be, it could be an extended yeah I mean otherwise why would you have the word path in there I mean path implies that there's, a, there's a distance to be traveled in order to arrive at a particular destination and so just the, the very existence of the word it, it would suggest that it's not just the same thing. But it's you know the and then also there, I couldn't I couldn't name which suttas, but um, there's places where the, the Buddha says you know such a, a being is on the path to stream entry or on the path to anagami but they haven't realised that fruit yet. So there, there's places where that kind of language is used. And Would it start straight after the previous fruit? So let's say you get the fruit of stream entry and then you're straight away on the path to yeah, once return. once you're the... out of that orchard, then. The, but that could be. It could be a long path. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah and I, I think it's good to bear in mind. There's uh, enormous individual variation. I would say. I mean, not that I'm a, have a direct knowledge on these areas, um, but how I understand these things to to work, it it can be uh, it can work radically differently for for, um, uh, for different people, so that you have. And like, well, just like in the suttas, you have experience. You know, there's accounts of of people you know, hearing the, the 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 dhamma for the first time, and then becoming an arahant. You know, hearing the Buddha giving a, a dhamma teaching from, like, uh, you know, Venerable Yasa. I mean, he uh, he was like a, a partying layman. <laughs> he was staggering out one of those one of those parties, <laughs> staggering out one of those parties, having got to sort of depressed and, and desolate, uh, and then goes off and, and runs into the Buddha in the park. Well, he's still, <laughs> I would suspect, not entirely sober, but he sobered up pretty quickly when he met the Buddha, and then the Buddha started talking to him and he became an Arahant, listening to the Buddha, and he still got his party clothes on. <laughs> and he, he asked the Buddha, can I, can I become your disciple? And he said, well, you better find some robes. And that's a, Paraphrase, <laughs> but he's still he's still wearing his his uh, his outfit from the party when he's just sat down. And... So that was pretty fast. Um, and you know, other other times, the you know, the situations and people practice for a long, long, long time. It's like it's interesting. That, uh, I haven't read the, the biography of uh, Venerable Ajahn Man for a long time, but uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, he said it was it was a lot many many years between the time when he realized uh, the level of anagami and he reached arahantship. So it was a long time, you know, like uh, you know, ten or twenty years, something like that. It was it was a long it was a long period of time. I, again, I haven't read it for a, for, a, for quite a while, but he um, he makes that comment that, that he would reached the, the realization of, of non-return, uh, non-returning. And then it was you know, uh, a long, uh, slow process. We, uh, that last path to realize the fruit of Arahantship was, was a long path. Yes? Okay. According to Buddha's cosmology, are humans first born as humans, or are we from, started from mountain or fish first? There isn't a first, there is no, no, uh, no first beginning is discernible. So there's, there's, no, there's a few places where the Buddha makes that comment, the no, no first cause is discernible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so there, uh, so any human being could have come from all kinds of different places. He could have been a monkey or a fish or he could have been a Brahma God. I don't have any abilities to see where people came from. Pre, you know, previous address, <laughs> <laughs> previous place of residence. No, it, can, it can vary enormously. Um, and uh, one of the interesting stories of the characters from the, the Buddha's time is um, uh, Gosaka, who was a, a rich uh, businessman in the city of Kosambi. And he, he donated the um, Gosita's park uh with one of the the, uh, the the monasteries that was given to the buddha in the buddha's lifetime and there's a, a long long story of uh, him starting off um uh or you know way back uh way back when as a a um uh, a a poor farmer who's traveling through the countryside uh with uh with his wife and a child and uh He's not a very good dad, if I remember the story correctly. And along the way, they're, they're starving and they're having a really difficult time. And he says, we should kill the child and eat it. Cause, and then we can have another child later on. And the wife says, no, that's not a boy. You can't kill him and eat him. And, and, uh, and so uh, fortunately, they come across a, 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 a little house of some farmers and they stay with them. And uh, these people are very, very friendly and helpful. Uh, and they give them some food, so they, oh this is great, but the, the husband, again not a very good husband, uh, he eats far too much of this porridge and he dies of indigestion during the night. <laughs> so he's like, oh great food, scarfs it all down and then dies of indigestion during the night. But because of his unskillful thoughts, there's a, um, there's a, a, a dog having puppies in the same building and he gets reborn as one of the puppies. <laughs> Uh, he, so he gets born as a dog because of his uh, unskillful thoughts, but it's a long, it really is a shaggy dog story <laughs> so uh, but then uh, because uh, he did have some virtues, then as a dog, he becomes quite um, friendly with a Pacheka Buddha, like a, 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 a lone Buddha. And becomes a protector. So he would follow along with this, this monk uh, when he went on arms run in the morning, and he would keep the, the you know the monkeys that would come and try and raid the, the, the monk for his food in his arms bowl. He would keep the he keep the monkeys away. Or if people were threatening the his 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 monk, you know, he would bark at them loudly and keep them off. And he was a kind of Dhamma protector. And I I had a there was a dog in India that uh, became my protector. I gave him the name Dharma <laughs> When I was living at Savati, there was a, a dog that used to protect me. He looked for scraps as well. he was kind of, there was some investment there that he was not averse to the odd samosa, but uh, he was a good dog he was a very he would keep the Bandar away when I was trying to do walking meditation. He would try and help me with my walking meditation too, walking just in front, a bit, a bit slower than I was walking so, so anyway, Gosuka uh, became uh, the protector of this this Pacheca buddha as a dog and then when the Pacheca buddha left and went off to a different place and the dog died of a broken heart oh my my dear monk has gone away so the dog died but because of the virtue that the dog had created through looking after this uh, samana a virtuous samana was reborn in one of the heavenly realms went to the Tavatinsa heaven but because of his background as a dog and he used to bark very loudly at the at the monkeys and such like that uh, that deva uh, that had been Gosuka was known as having a very loud voice, so uh, Gosuka uh, has a, has a meaning of uh, loud, you know, loud one, <laughs> and so he was a loud deva in that uh, in that realm, and then um, got born in the human realm, and eventually yeah, cut along Shaggy's dog story, short, eventually. Um, became a, 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 was born into the human realm and became a disciple of the Buddha. And uh, so you, you, there's an a, extensive account of Gosuka's story in the um, in the Dhammapada commentary. So you can find it. I also uh, I, I use it in that book, The Mara and the Mangala. It appears there in some detail because it's such a great tale. But so it's it's there in in the scriptures, in the, in the teachings, uh, where if you know, someone starts off as a human, becomes a dog, then becomes a deva, then becomes back to the human realm, and, and even, even as a, an animal was able to create good karma. So that's why you know, animals who live close to human beings can create good karma and get themselves out of the human realm. So maybe some of us were dogs in our previous lifetimes, looked after a few noble beings, and. The, managed to land in the human realm coming come into contact with the Dhamma teachings. So I think that's enough for today. I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> I tend to notice stories about dogs because my parents were both dog people. Along with with horses, uh, we're a a dog-loving family. They appear in my world a lot.